0: we have Professor Edith Feskins, who obtained her master's in human nutrition from Wageningen University and PhD from the Department of Social Medicine from Leiden University, both in the Netherlands. Her doctoral thesis focus on the epidemiology of glucose tolerance, dietary determinants, and cardiovascular consequences. From them, she has worked at the National Institute of Public Health and the Environment as the head of the Cardiovascular and Diabetes Epidemiology Unit, and she has been involved in several European projects. Edith is currently a certified supervisor in epidemiology, and her international roles include chair of the scientific advisory board of the joint programming initiative, A Healthy Diet for a Healthy Life. The combined lifestyle intervention for the prevention of type 2 diabetes, Slimmer, that was developed by her and her team, has been included in the Dutch basic health insurance since January 2019, a true milestone. Currently, she focuses on combating malnutrition in all its forms, globally, and in particular in low- and middle-income countries, and including trade-offs with sustainability. Today, she comes to introduce us to the first results of the SWEET project, an EU-funded project focused on developing and reviewing the evidence on long-term benefits and potential risks involved in switching over to sweeteners in the context of public health and safety, obesity, and sustainability whenever you're ready, Edith.
1: Thank you for the kind uh, invitation. And like I already said, it's nice that you have in Oxford something like this interdisciplinary virtual institute uh, studying obesity. I like that idea a lot. We should do that more often in the Netherlands. I'm going to share my screen so you will see my PowerPoint and I put it on presentation mode. I hope everything works fine. In the beginning, I will start a little bit. Well, I'm in Wageningen University and i uh, my current chair is called Global Nutrition. I, I will talk also a little bit about sugars and sweeteners, a little bit more in general, before describing the Sweet Project for you, which is a little bit on the on the more latest information. Just to get you know, give you an idea what I'm thinking about sugar, added sugar, etc. And I'm also going to discuss fruit juice a little bit. Perhaps you are already aware, but this is how we as nutrition scientists talk about carbohydrates. We talk about sugars, but obviously there are many types of different sugars. I mean, I'm mean, i not sure about the UK, but even in the Netherlands, we talk about sugar. We usually mean sucrose, right? The sugar we put in our, our coffee or <laughs> we use for in the, cook, in the kitchen. But obviously there are also other ones and fructose is also something I'm, I'm going to discuss. Now, what are the recent recommendations? I, I, in the Netherlands, we have a very simple one, food-based dietary guideline. You know, drink as little as sugar-sweetened beverages as possible. And I'm coming back to the sugar-sweetened beverages later. WHO already said a while ago, less than 10% of your dietary energy should come from free sugars. And I'm Going back to the free sugars later, with a proposed conditional recommendation of less than 5% of dietary energy as free sugars. And that's not much I'm going to show you. Uh, The latest uh, US recommendations, which were released this summer, says on the added sugars, less than 10% of calories per day, starting at age 2. This 5% of WHO was a provisional recommendation. Uh, 10% is more usual, I would say but also not easy. Now, you can discuss a lot about definitions about added sugars. I think in the UK, at least until recently, you were talking more about non-milk extrinsic sugars, so sugars not contained within the cellular structure of a food, as well as uh, sugars in milk and, and milk products. Free sugars is the WHO, and this is a quite strict definition. Sugars are uh, added, uh, Sugars added to foods by the manufacturer, Cook or consumer, plus sugars naturally present in honey, syrups, fruit juices, and fruit concentrates are are free sugars. The added sugars is a little bit less strict, but sometimes it doesn't matter so much. In any case, you know that you can have write whole books about this type of uh, definitions, and sometimes it matter a little bit for the results, but not for the epidemiology I'm going to uh, to talk about. We did a survey using the Dutch National Food Consumption Survey uh, about ten years ago, and you see here the added sugars uh, less than 10% of total energy, uh, the recommendation by the US, for example still 29% of our Adults or old population uh, adhere to that recommendation. So that's not too bad, actually. But especially for the boys, it was very difficult. For the adults, it was much more easy. But then the free sugars, uh, that's what I showed it here. And the total, uh, the 5% of energy as proposed in the ideal situation by WHO, at the moment, still only 2% of the Dutch, or still 10 years ago. And that hasn't changed much, I think a little bit. Only 2% of the people uh, eat at the moment, like this. And perhaps you can fill me in later about what you know about the UK situation. So uh, far from ideal. Now, I must say I'm a little bit sceptical regarding the WHO guideline. I think what they say at that time, also about 10 years ago, they say there is evidence of moderate quality, moderate quality, not high quality, to show that dental carriers is lower when free sugar intake is below 10% of energy. So remember, at that time, the recommendation on total sugar, so either in drinks or solid form, was based on dental caries, not so much as BMI, as you would think. And, and also the evidence was of moderate quality, saying it was mostly based on observational studies, not on RCTs. So that, that is very interesting, I would say, and, and sometimes also a little bit worrisome. Uh, because I can tell you that if we say, you know, eat less free sewers, less than 10% of energy, and you just eat fat or protein instead, or, or starch, then that will not do much for your BMI. And that is a little bit worrisome. At that time, also the group of uh, New Zealand, or Jim men they uh, provided the meta-analysis, the systematic review supporting WHO in their work, their conclusion on dietary sugars and body weight were less strong because they said the change in body fatness that occurs with modifying intake seems to be mediated by changes in energy intake, like I said, right? So it's about the energy. It's not so much about the sugar or the carbohydrates per se. So what does this advice about lowering your sugar intake do? Interesting discussion. There is also other types of evidence which uh, more relate also to the fluid form of sugar, the sugar-sweetened beverages, and they're based on several RCTs. There's clear evidence that If you drink sugar-sweetened beverages instead of sweetened beverages, uh, your body weight goes up. And that is also because sugar is the calorie, obviously. In the sweetened beverages, there's less or no calories. And also because it's fluid, uh, it really doesn't do much for the satiation. So there will not be a compensation in eating less calories when you drink the sugar instead of eating and chewing the sugar. So, you know, the form, the texture of your food or drink really matters. Now, here I show this... uh discussion uh, also quite a while ago, eight years ago, you can say based on the same type of, of evidence, the same RCTs, Frank Hu and other his group of Walter Willett, they were uh, a little bit on the positive side. You know, you can say the glass is half full or half empty. You said there is sufficient evidence to say, yes, you should drink less sugar-sweetened beverages. If you are more on the strict side and say, okay, where is exactly the evidence? How important is it in the, in the relation of the food? Uh, obesogenic environment, then perhaps you can say, well, maybe there is not evidence enough. But overall, and I agree with that, most of the the scientists now agree that, yes, sugar sweetened beverages is not a clever thing to do in terms of uh, obesity, preventing obesity or treating obesity. Fructose, another kid on the block, one of the simpler sugars. And there's a lot of talk about fructose basic sciences especially, but also has potential underlying Uh, the factor of the obesity epidemic, you can think about fructose, indeed, metabolically speaking, it does something else than glucose. And it really involves is involved in the lipogenesis. So in the liver, increasing the fatty acid production, and in the end, at very high doses leading to hepatic steatosis. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, not a nice thing to have it is some sort of insulin resistance of the liver. Where is the evidence? Well, I come back first to say, how much fructose do we eat? Well, this is our, again, our Dutch summary. If we think about the simple sugars, so the mono and disaccharides, glucose, fructose, saccharose, etc., we have uh, over 120 grams per day. Fructose is then free fructose, but also half of the molecule of saccharose. Remember, sucrose is, a, is the two molecules linked together, a glucose and a fructose molecule. So fructose is also part of your sucrose. So we have quite a fair amount of uh, fructose in total, 50 grams a day. If you see about the Netherlands, this is in Dutch, I apologize, 13% of our total fructose intake is from fruit. And here, frisdrank, sugar, sweetened beverages, 20% is from sugar, sweetened beverages. But here you have the fruit juice, still another 10%. And of course we have the sugar in the cake and cookies, 10%. So fructose is all over the place. But also fruit and sometimes, you know, the fructose story tends to forget the fact that it's also inherently part of uh, fruit. Uh, Should we be worried about fructose? Well, the idea about fructose is the same as with the sugar. If you replace it isocalorically, so keeping energy the same, you don't see a change in in getting uh, up or down your fructose. No change in, in, in body weight. But if it's hypercaloric, so you add it to another diet, the control diet, then body weight increases. So that, that gives the indication it's about the calories, not so much the fructose itself as a molecule. Apparently, there's also quite some heterogeneity, especially in type 2 diabetes. But overall, I, I think at the moderate doses our, our intake is in our countries, this, this is still fairly correct. Is it really, you know, the high fructose corn syrups? were suspected, I think about 20 years ago by George Bray as as being the underlying culprit of the obesity academic. I think now people are much more nuanced if you talk about high fructose corn syrup, um, usually it's a, you're talking about a, a corn syrup which contains of 55% of fructose, 45% of glucose, while normally sucrose is 50-50, the two molecules. So there is a moderate increase in fructose in these, in these uh, syrups. Then the impact of what you see is also not that spectacular. You see, indeed, um, a recent study high fructose corn syrup comparing to sucrose, aspartame, uh, the hepatic lipid uh, development was a little bit, you know, reduction. But for the high fructose corn syrup and the sucrose, actually, you know, it was both an increase in hepatic lipids, as you would expect in this typically st- typical study. It was based on beverages. So, Overall, you see here, you know, no need to look at the details, but here on the right-hand side, looking at the glucose tolerance curve, so the area under the glucose curve, also an increase both in high fructose corn syrup and sucrose group, not too significantly different from each other, but clearly different from the aspartame, uh, the sweet beverage that was used in this uh, study. So my conclusion, in summary, if you ask me, Edith, what do you think about sugars? Well, I think added sugar, free sugars or sugars naturally occur, occurring in the food and not necessarily added in the kitchen or in the factory for the body, obviously it doesn't matter. And I think it's more important to look at the types of food and, and the other aspects like the texture, uh, the sugar sweetened beverages for, versus a solid food, or obviously also thinking about fruit or what, are, what other aspects potential more healthy aspects are in the food so i'm very in favor of food based dietary guidelines and not you know thinking about this type of differences in sugars role of fructose i'm sure it will depend on the dose on really high levels much higher than we have in our normal diet indeed hepatic steatosis can occur the high fructose corn syrup, I'm not so worried about. For me, it's almost the same as sucrose. And then a final question: Should fruit juice be considered also to be a sugar sweetened beverage? I come back to that later when we talk about the sweet study. It's a it's a question I was asked in the old days, you know, before five years ago. In the Netherlands, for example, we would count a glass of fruit juice also as having a portion of fruit. So in our advice, you know, take two portions of fruit a day, a glass of fruit juice would count as fruit. Now we are more clever in our advice and that's not the case anymore because then, you know, it's the fluid calories like the sugar-sweetened beverages we were talking about and the antioxidants and vitamins present are maybe not counting so much as an overall health benefit of fruit juice. But I'll come back to that later. Now, I'd like to uh, talk to you about the sweet project and also show some preliminary results of our work package on on the epidemiology part of it. And in in the end, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, why sweeteners are potentially also debated because, you know, sweeteners can be good. You think, okay if you're worried about sugar, well, take the sweetener. But there are concerns about sweeteners as well. And that's also important to realize. OK, so when we talk about the sweetness, actually, I always I'm not I'm a native speaker, of course. So sometimes we talk about artificial sweetness and then is it artificial? Because the stevia is, is not really an artificial one, right? It's, uh, it's from nature. Non-sugar sweetness. Yes, but how about the sugar alcohols? Uh, low-caloric sweetness. Yes, possible. Low-energy sweetness. Uh, it's a uh, different types of names. And I must say, I, I, sometimes I'm confused myself. Uh, so we have nutritive sweeteners. So the sweeteners like sugar, they are sweet and give nutrients, modified sugars, but also the polyols, the sugar, alcohols, they provide some calories and also the natural ones provide some calories. And But also you can have the non-sugar sweeteners, the really artificial ones or non the natural non-caloric ones. So in general, Low caloric sweetness or artificial sweetness are not always new. Remember saccharin. <laughs> we don't use that so much anymore. Was already invented or uh, approved by FDA. I didn't know that actually. In eighteen seventy nine, aspartame, a very popular one now nowadays, was already uh, was approved in, in nineteen eighty one. Stevia was apparently already approved in nineteen fifty five. Interesting, right? And obviously, the common use, you can see that here on the right, depending on the molecule and and the taste, sometimes they have a bitter aftertaste. They fit well in either the drinks or the gums, like the polyols or or sugar alcohols here or more in the baked goods. So plenty of use in the different types of projects and considered safe. And obviously, very much, you know, the differences in in the sweetness of of sucrose. So obviously, the sweeter it is, the less uh, amount. You need to use the variations in regulations. That is perhaps something to remember. You, the European Food Safety Authority, and the US Drug Administration, and the ECFA, which is about this one, the FAO one, are not always on the same page regarding the amounts. But overall, obviously, it's based on the same type of literature. So also not too much differences there. But for example, Cyclomed, it's apparently uh, agreed upon by the EFSA, but not in the U.S. Interesting. Now, the sweetness, like I said, they have been heavily debated in the popular press and in the literature, especially also in their effects regarding energy intake and body weight. And I'll come back to the reason why later. But there has also been a very nice systematic review, including a meta-analysis in which my colleague, Kees de Graaf, and my, for his former PhD, Plony Hogekamp, also participate. And so I'd like to show this with you. So if you are worried about low energy sweetener consumption, what do they do? Well, in animal studies, you see in most of them, let's say, no difference at any dose, an increase in body weight only if you, and in most animal studies, let's say, a decrease, especially at the higher doses. So you would say in animal studies, yes, sweeteners are effective compared to sugar. If you think about the low energy sweeteners versus sugar in, let's say, intervention studies, uh, these are intervention studies, especially at lower intakes, you see indeed a reduced intake in energy. So you compare sweeteners with sugar, yes, energy intake is lower in the group who has this sweeteners, lower sweeteners. So sometimes people say, okay, long term, people get to seems to get used to the sweet taste, and that's not clever, especially not for children, because you teach them to love sweet and they're going to increase their sugar intake later in life or later on or after a meal already. Perhaps that's not completely true, but that was or you know the main concern of sweetness. In cohorts, I'm going to talk about cohorts more and talk about BMI. Well, the low energy sweetener groups have a lower BMI. So that fits in the hypothesis that it helps. But there's also small changes as high heterogeneity. And I come back to that later, because that's also part of our work in sweet RCTs, I already said, clearly, sweeteners, lower body weight, especially on Ravens study, blackburns, that is a high, maybe a little bit an outlier. But overall, this is the estimate of the meta-analysis, a um, clear reduction BMI in body weight. And this is a, a study in children uh, comparing indeed sugar sweetened beverages with low energy sweetened beverages in children. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine by former colleagues of us. A- a clear, it was one of the reasons for this. Um, want this uh, positive this idea that we should reduce sugar sweetened beverages because naturally sweetened or the artificially sweetened beverages reduced their body weight right so i mean some people argue you the energy the sweeteners are bad because you like to have a sweet taste and you're going to eat more sugar later but at least in these children. Uh, it's at least uh, better for their body weight compared to the sugar-sweetened beverages. So if there are questions about this, uh, please ask me later. So in general, the concerns are the cephalic response, that is the idea, a blunted cephalic response increases caloric intake and weight gain, that could be the case, one of the concerns. The impact of the pancreas, activation of sweet taste receptors could initiate a hyperinsulinemic response to glucose simulation and then indeed also deteriorate or increase obesity, for example, increased adiposits, the cycle you see here. Or because of the sweetness, the microbiota could be affected, inducing microbiota dysbiosis, increasing short-chain fatty acids and metabolites in the, the colon, and that will be taken up in the gut and be transported and promote insulin resistance in the, in the body. So these are the main, let's say, underlying mechanisms people feel that are you know detrimental in terms of the relationship between non-nutritive sweetness and indeed obesity. Now, these were all kinds of reasons to, to stimulate the uh, occurrence of the Sweet Project. Here you see a nice picture of a couple of years ago when we were still able to meet in the UK, in London. And the PIs are Jason Helford, Joe Harold, Liverpool Leeds, and Anna Rabin from Copenhagen. And it's about sweeteners and sweetness enhancers the impact on health, obesity, safety, and sustainability. And obviously, I'm not going to be able to talk about all because still we don't have all the results, but I'm going to show the results on, the, on my own work package, which is the population-based studies. Work package one, you know, EU projects are always nicely organized in work packages, is about innovation and in production, developing or testing new types of sweeteners and new combinations of sweeteners, developing new projects, but also a sweetener database, which all information about different types of sweeteners is and will be open later. So that can be consulted and also an exploration of the regulatory framework. So very useful for the field in general. And work package two, these new new mixtures of the new blends will be tested in terms of impact on food behavior and physiology and some health aspects on the long term. So the blends selected will be tested and added to some foods. Acute responses of glucose and triglycerides, uh, subjective appetite will be monitored to reward 24 hours subsequently for our food intake, but also the glycemic index, uh, or the GI impact, sorry, GI metabolic side effects. So for example, bloating or whatever, rebound hunger will be uh, tested as well. First with the blends and latter in five solid matrices, cookies and yogurt, for example. So that will be a very interesting part uh, for testing these new blends and give us also a little bit more, you know, standardized way or standardized protocol of testing all these activities, including MRI brain activity. So feelings of hunger. Then a long-term clinical trial, a lot of work and, you know, a little bit struggling also with COVID currently, but, you know, they're going to make the adults' inclusions completely for trial centers and led by uh, Anne Raven in Copenhagen, but also a center in Spain, a center in UK, and maybe a center in Eastern Europe, yeah, Bulgaria. Um, and the follow-up will be shortened all because of COVID, but, you know, having foods with Existing existing foods, so not investigating the new blends, having a, a, a weight reduction and see what with these different types of, uh, of um, not the different types, but with normally available uh, sweetener sweetened foods instead of sugars, sweetened uh, foods, see how those body weights uh, will develop over time. So a very nice RCT. So looking at the efficacy, on BMI, so changes in anthropometry, but also glucose levels or the cardiovascular risk factors, but also good brain signaling models, but also looking at safety. So looking at liver fat adverse events, uh, allergenicity, for example, and in subgroups, neurobehavior, for example. So I'm very exciting to see does more of those results. So uh, I myself am involved in, in the population-based studies. And what we did <laughs> and we have some results, is because we used existing cohorts. That was very clever, of course. Uh, I'm going to introduce the cohorts now. We use from Spain, uh, and that is a power partner in the Canary Islands, uh, Esther, uh, the PREDIMED study. And this is a group of overweight and obese people, middle-aged, I would say, where we have also FFQ information on their intake and urine samples for biomarkers. I'm going back to that. Using this cohort, we like to examine the prediction or the association between the intake of sweeteners and sweetness enhancers uh, for health and disease. The Gemini I'm going to talk later. And then in the Netherlands, we have three cohorts, a cohort of healthy adults from our university, a cohort of a total larger cohort, more than 160,000 people of the whole population in the north of the Netherlands, Groningen, and a group of post-MI patients. And also we have an FFQ, Uh, and they were a little bit older. And then we have the Greek family study, high-risk type 2 diabetes, where we use the adults, uh, 765, where we have information on adult uh, FFQ, sweetener. And what we're going to do in the beginning is talk about You know, the change in body weight, the incidence of obesity, but also later mortality of cardiovascular diseases or cause mortality, but also the changes of prevalence or incidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and metabolic syndrome. So the whole spectrum of metabolic diseases of which you think, you know, are relevant for the sugar, but also relevant for the sweetener discussion. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the Gemini cohort. It's by UCL because they have, have uh, are really working hard on, on the dietary information, have done some very clever things about estimating uh, the intake of sweetness in their children. And uh, Lisa Heggie the PhD, will be happy, I think, to talk about this to you guys uh, next time uh, when she has some results to present. So I leave the floor for her then. Our cohorts on adults. Uh, we had lifelines. NQ plus and Alpha Omega in the Netherlands. Alpha Omega, you can see uh, more men because these were patients with uh, cardiovascular disease or coronary heart disease. Uh, some older cohorts, and in general, uh, quite some variation in education. I must say here in Lifelines, it's not really highly educated. It was more a group which was intermediately educated. In NQ plus cohort, which was around Wageningen and obviously University City, was relatively highly educated. What did they drink? Well, we were interested in sugar-sweetened beverages and fruit juice and, of course, the low-calorie beverages, low-calorie sweetened beverages. And and lifelines... Quite some fruit juice users, and you see fruit juice actually high almost in all of the cohorts, interestingly. The sugar-sweetened beverages, you know, in the non-patients or in the older groups, quite high. In the pre-med, not so much sugar-sweetened beverages. Maybe it's a culture thing, I don't know. Maybe because they were all obese or overweight, so that may be one of the reasons. And the low-calorie sweetened beverages, quite high in lifelines also. And much less so uh, also in Spain and, and feel for diabetes, the Greek study. I'm not sure if this is typical for the Dutch situation. Lifelines a little bit lower educated, the general population, no patients. I'm not sure, but we can think about uh, the reason why, obviously. So, what do we do? Either cross sectional analysis or, or perspective. I'm going to explain later. Obviously, in an observational study, you all know. Dietary habits like sugar-sweetened beverages or low-calorie beverages use are associated with all kinds of other habits which are associated with potentially with obesity. So we always adjust it for age and sex and education. Also physical activity, sometimes also sedentary behavior independently from the physical activity because we know it's a risk factor for obesity. Obviously also smoking and alcohol and then various dietary factors. Uh, sugary foods, you know, the foods from other sources, not the sugar from other sources, not the drinks, the healthy types, nuts, legumes, Coffee, tea, because there are also beverages which you can think of, especially in terms of coronary heart disease and diabetes, may have beneficial or non-beneficial effects and may be associated with the sugar-sweetened beverages in an inverse way. Dairy, obviously, processed meat, also a risk factor for diseases. And of course, vegetables and fruit, the healthy aspects of our dietary pattern. So we try to do that as much as possible. Sometimes we had to do make some ch- differences or discussions or Let's say choices because we wanted to align the uh, the different cohorts as much as possible. But some of the results are quite detailed. I will show you on the Lifelines cohort. That's a large cohort, and we had very detailed dietary information available. And obviously, also energy intake plays a role. So in many analyses, we also adjusted for energy. So you can think about it as an isocaloric. Uh, so here are the results. But bear with me. So in the upper, you have the incidence of overweight uh, that's based on BMI. so overweight and obesity in the upper panel in the lower panel, it's abdominal obesity as measured with the waist circumference. So this is in the lifelines cohort, a very large cohort. Uh, we took the people who were free of that disease. So it was really prospective. And here on the left-hand side, you see the sugar-sweetened beverages in servings per day. So you see here, we so show the splines for sugar-sweetened beverages with increasing intake, the incidence of overweight increased. That's what our hypothesis was, right? So the higher the intake, uh, yet the higher the risk of developing overweight later. The same was true for abdominal obesity as measured with waist circumference. So that confirmed our hypothesis. On the right-hand side, you see the low-calorie uh, sweetened beverages. And that was a little bit confusing, perhaps, in that sense that if you see you use them more, also your incidence goes up. It's a little bit confusing. You can see that here also for waste, but a little bit less clear, also for overweight. Uh, here you see for fruit juice and, and U-shaped relations show an inverse association, smaller intakes, but increasing Uh, BMI in this case the incidence of overweight and obesity at higher intakes of fruit juice per day this can be a little bit you know especially the low calorie beverages can be a little bit debated but I'm going to go back to that, we thought first, okay, this is baseline intake only. Uh, What happens if we look at the total population, but also check whether they were overweight or obese at at the beginning? Because what you have is when you are overweight or obese, and of course, when you state your your drinking pattern and in this case uh, not the alcoholic drinking but the beverages uh, what do you report well maybe because you are concerned about your overweight you already start using lcbs right so it's not maybe that you're naive to this so we looked at bmi categories and the the normal ones are in the most dark you see indeed as i expected this increase in body weight especially in the normal ones so maybe in the overweight people the you know the reporting uh, was perhaps not that well done. Can be right? It's a question mark. I'm not sure, but we know overweight people tend to misreport some things. For the fruit juice, I leave it for now. But here the LCB, disappointingly, you know, we would say yes. Well, it, we also see it in the normal weight people and not so much different from the overweight people. So maybe this misreporting issue is not so much an issue in the LCB result. Come back to that later. When we think about the uh, metabolic syndrome, we see a little. A little bit the similar results as for BMI and overweight. In overweight, normal BMI increases in metabolic syndrome fits the increase in BMI. Also LCB, unexpectedly perhaps an increase in fruit use a G shape relation for the metabolic sin, for example. I come back to this later. But if you think about what's happening here, you can think about, okay, perhaps what we didn't do in LCB is indeed, like I said, right, people are perhaps already concerned and that we have a change over the years. So people turned, they turned into obesity. We didn't look at the change in intake over time. Maybe they, they started drinking more or drinking less. So we have only... LCB and SSB intake at one point in time. So maybe that also is a potential explanation of this positive association, or maybe there is residual confounding by other factors. Uh, Maybe there is also, you know, the presence of of disease and they started with underlying diseases, so had started using LCB already there. We took that into account and couldn't find a satisfactory explanation. That is uh, perhaps good for you to know. Now, when we talk about mortality, I think this is also uh, very relevant. You see here because that hasn't been, you know, investigated so much. For each class of increment, we see for SSB an increase in mortality. So the higher your SSB intake, the higher your subsequent mortality over the next, uh, well, seven or 12, seven years on average, I would say. Uh, for the LCB, a positive association, but not significant. So very minor, you know, a small increase, but not significant. So indeed, if we can say, summarize this, and we need to think a little bit more about the interpretation, at least LCB is not as deadly as as as, as you would think as SSB are. And when you do, A proper public health important analysis of replacing SSB and substituting with LCB, you see for sure a reduction in. Mortality, So that fits our original hypothesis. For the fruit juice, I already said, this is of interest. We again see this G-shaped association. So an inverse association here and an increase at higher doses. You see that also here in the fully adjusted model, uh, below one, significantly below one. If you have in the moderate intake, this is in glasses per week. By the way, not in per day, but this is in glasses per week. So one per day, more or less. And you see an increase in mortality and a higher intakes per day. And that would fit, obviously, also with what we see for the sugar-sweetened beverages. And this would fit perhaps what is also seen by others in in meta-analysis on cardiovascular disease as somehow, let's say, protective effect. I'm not allowed to say so because it's an association. Obviously, it's observation, not an RCT. But at the lower doses of fruit juice, perhaps because it indeed uh, contains also other things than, than sugar, perhaps also because it's partly associated with other health aspects that the jury is still out. We need to investigate this a little bit more in detail, but... At least at higher doses, seems to be you know behaving like a sugar sweetened beverage. So the detrimental associations between SSB and LCB we see, and a G shaped associations for fruit. So our strengths so far, we have a large sample size, especially in the in the, the cohort of of, uh, of lifelines. Also note that we don't use self reports weight and height, but really have physical measurements of this large, very large sample. So that is a good thing. We try to harmonize the data sets of the other cohorts as much as possible and adjustments for large set of confounders. We stratified according to baseline weight and also did sensitivity analysis, exclusions of participants with other conditions. But of course, it's residual confounding can never be excluded in any uh, observational study, you know that. And also, like I said, in Lifeline, for example, we didn't have repeated measures of diet in, in most of the cohorts, so we never can exclude the issue of uh, reverse causality. And also note that so far we were not able to make distinctions be the different type of sweet. Now, what we are currently doing is developing method- methods, we are still working on it, but it seems to work, but we still need to measure them, uh, of uh, an LCMS method where, in a single run, we can measure biomarker and biomarkers of sugars, but also sweeteners. So, uh, that is a very nice result. And it's, so far, it works only at the, the stevial uh, standard, hasn't arrived at the lab. We're waiting for it more than a year. It has to do with uh, COVID, unfortunately. So we, we haven't been able to do the analysis in all the samples yet. But for sure, we are going to do that, uh, validate uh, our data on FFQS, but also then are be able to make a little bit stronger statements on uh, on that, say, the sweeteners especially. Before I close, I'd like to say that you know the review concluding the beneficial relationship of uh, low energy sweeteners uh, and. Body weight cite mainly RCTs. Remember, like our our Dutch study in children pairing uh, artificially sweetened uh, beverages with sugar sweetened beverages, the reviews concluding adverse relationships, like how we do affect with LCB and, and body weight, especially an LC and LCB and, and metabolic syndrome, cite mainly observational studies. So I think there is really something there which we need to to discuss a little bit uh, more in, in our papers we will actually and in our project because this may be the difference of the conclusions also in our case. My take, we, you have seen here the results, sugar-sweetened beverages from our case associated with increases in body weight, also increases in mortality. The LCBs in our observational studies, again, a little bit more uncertain, but like other uh, studies, uh, observational cohorts, there is this heterogeneity. So we need to take that into account. And like, well, perhaps it's also misreport. So we hope when we have the biomarkers of intake, we can also say, something about the misreport report and adjust for it and see whether our results change. And for the fruit juice, like I said, interesting to study further. But so far, I'm very happy with the recent Dutch guideline that it's concerned uh, sugar sweetened beverages rather than uh, a portion fruit. So this closes my presentation. Of course, I'd like to thank all the PhDs involved, Naomi and Marion. Lisa, perhaps you're going to hear later, and our collaborators from Spain and Greece and from the So Without that, we couldn't have done this and hope to show you sometime in future more about the biomarkers and the, all the additional work we can do in sweet And thank you.